people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. You know, I, I want to spend some time today talking about private property. And, and I want to do that from several different angles. And Oh, don't let me forget. Um, uh, Charles Hugh Smith, author of the book, Get a Job, Build a Real Career, Defy a Bewildering Economy, and author of the blog of two minds uh will be joining me in a little bit so uh hang out for that charles is a great great writer and a lot of fun to talk to in the meantime i want to talk about private property and and some interesting things happen uh this week that caught my eye from a private property standpoint now if you own a business and you sell stuff as most businesses do um, if you match your competitors' prices, in other words, you sell your product the same as your competitors, government bureaucrats can come in and uh, uh, charge you with collusion or price fixing. So simply by matching your competitors' price, you can commit a crime. There's over 35 auto parts manufacturers have found out the hard way that that can be the case. And uh, they were charged uh, from the U.S. Department of Justice, the antitrust division, on price collusion for auto parts. So if you match your competitor's price from your company, you can be charged with collusion. What if if your company if your product for your company is too high? Government bureaucrats can come in and charge you with price gouging. And we saw that during uh times of emergency like Hurricane Katrina or Sandy or something like that when generators went through the roof, uh gasoline goes up, water, that kind of stuff. So Department of, of uh, Transportation right now is investigating five of the nation's uh, large airlines for price gouging. And, and so if you match your competitor, government can come after you. If you're too high, the government can come after you. This is what caught my eye this week. What if your prices are deemed too low. Government bureaucrats will come after you and charge you with predatory pricing or selling products below cost. Now, here in the Midwest, one of our major uh, chains of department stores and, and groceries and that kind of stuff is Meyer. Meyer is based out of Michigan, been around for a long time, but uh, 
They recently opened two stores in Wisconsin that uh, immediately led to a state investigation to determine if they violated a Depression-era law that keeps certain products from being sold below cost. What's the product? Milk. Milk. There's 37 products reported at these two Meyer stores in four, four, count them, four complaints filed against the uh, retailer that are reported to be priced too low. Two of those products, one, one of them is bananas. 28 cents a pound. 28 cents a pound for bananas is priced too low. All the way to a dollar ninety nine for a gallon of milk. A buck ninety nine for a gallon of milk. These complaints were filed with the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, and uh, they're charged with enforcing the unfair sales acts, meaning that they have to have a minimum markup. Now The minimum markup, the Unfair Sales Act, covers gasoline, tobacco, and general merchandise products. But this is private property. This is a company that wants to sell something at a specific price, and if they're selling it for less than what they paid for it, who cares? Who cares? Apparently, they've never heard of the term loss leader. Milk is always a loss leader. That's why they put it clear back in the back corner so that you have to walk by everything else to pick up a gallon of milk. They don't put that up by the cash register. They don't want people running in, grabbing a gallon of milk, paying for it, and leaving. They want it all the way in the back so you pick up two or three, four or five other products on your round trip back to the the uh, the dairy. But what business is it of the government to determine whether I'm selling my product too high or too low or the same as my competitors? This this is it's like an internal domestic tariff. They got four complaints, and I guarantee you that those complaints were from competitors. Certainly weren't from the customers. You'd think the government would want foodstuffs, especially, to be priced cheaper so that poorer people, poorer families, could get what they need and afford it. But no, no, they're concerned about sticking their nose in everybody's business so they can have that power. They really have no right to it. I mean, it's just silly. Another violation on property rights uh, this week came out of the Colorado Appeals Court. And they ruled that owners of a bakery in Colorado do not have the right to essentially control their property. They're forced to provide bakery services to a couple uh, that want to get married. Now, we've heard this story before. It was in Indiana uh, a while back. Uh, These people, uh, a gay couple, same-sex couple, want to get married. And they go to the bakery, and the bakery owner says, you know, I'm not in favor of uh, same-sex marriages. I'm not going to provide my product. 
Now, the problem I have with this, this is a private company. And in free market capitalism, the very nature of commerce and our whole concept of contracts is that both parties need to agree to the transaction. If one party is forced, forced to be part of a transaction, then there is no no freedom. Everybody knows that when you, when you force a relationship, when there's coercion there, it's inherently unjust. Um, they, 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 you, you can't have free market comp, uh, capitalism with a gun to your head. Now, do I agree with the bakery turning uh, same-sex couples down to provide their product just because they're a same-sex couple? No, but I'm not the bakery owner. My thought is, you know what? If you don't want to provide me with with your services, uh, I'll go down the street. Your competitors will get my business. In Ohio, and uh, many states now in in, in the country, uh, they've passed no smoking laws in restaurants. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. This is my private property. I own a restaurant or whatever. And the the uh, state says, I cannot have smokers in my property. Now, I don't smoke. I don't like being around smoke. If, so, if I'm someplace in the past and someone is smoking nearby and it's disturbing me, I leave. The business owner makes a choice about his own commerce and who he wants to do business with knowing that everything, every choice a business owner makes is somewhat based on discrimination. You have to be discriminatory. You have to be discerning in how you do business. Now, we've got laws out there that you can't refuse service to people based on their race. And once again, I agree with with this, I think everyone should be able to um, get what they want, regardless of their skin color or whatever. But I also agree that a private business owner has the right to serve or not serve anybody they want, understanding that there are consequences to those choices. If a restaurant in town refers re, uh, refuses to serve, um, uh, a certain segment of society, and I know that, I can decide whether to do business with them or not based on that. And the business owner knows that. When you put a gun to people's head, free market goes out the door. And where's it going to stop? Where does it stop? Pretty soon, there will be no free commerce. The government will decide who you can do business with, what your products are, and how you price them. This country was founded on private property. And if we just sit back and let these private property rights diminish, we're going to suffer the consequences tremendously going forward. Up next... 
some more property, private property rights, I think, being violated in our school system. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We've been spending a little time talking about private property rights, and I came across a couple other instances that uh, kind of reflect the, the same thought. I mean, there's, there's school systems now that are essentially randomly drug testing their kids. Now, I'm not a parent, so obviously that makes me an expert on being a parent. But uh, if I had kids and they went to a school and the school drug tested my kid, uh, I'd have a real issue with that. I'd have a real problem. Now, schools can't massively uh, drug test students. However, they can test students that uh, take advantage of certain perks like, uh, oh, you got a parking space. Okay, that gives us the right to drug test you. Um, you participate in sports. Okay, we can drug test you. You participate in in virtually anything, and they're technically permitted to conduct drug tests on students. Now, um, the the information I read was out of Reason magazine, and uh, it talked about. Uh, high schools in Wisconsin. And out of the one particular high school, uh, Krivitz High School, out of 1,458 students, they're allowed to test 1,266 of them. Virtually all of them, they're allowed to test randomly. Now, we've known for years, years, the research behind uh, drug test on students tells us doesn't really change anything. Yeah, you might you might catch a few kids uh, with drugs or drugs in their system, but uh, it really doesn't do anything. And the worst thing you can do for a kid is uh, turn them into a criminal or a dropout because of this. I mean, they're they're treating them like they were prisoners. And once again, I'm not a parent, so I don't know how you feel. You can let me know. But if I were a parent, I'd have a real problem with this. And I'd, I'd have a problem with public school in general because another study came out, Wall Street Journal this week, that says because of the no child left behind mentality, schools focus on their weakest students and ignore their strongest students. And what's happening in U.S. education is that gifted students, students that have an aptitude for learning and an ability to learn faster and better, um, rarely getting encouraged to explore their full potential. Especially in poor and minority students. Very few young Americans 
reach the top ranks on math, science, and reading. In fact, the U.S. in general, from a global standpoint, we're 17th in reading, 20th in math, uh, 20th in science, 27th in math. Now, how are we going to become the great inventing uh, country in the future? How are we going to compete globally with our students in those categories? For decades, we've focused on boosting weak students with minimum proficiency teaching to the test rather than encouraging excellence. And I, I, once again, not a student, not a teacher. But the test results show that the gifted children in this country just aren't reaching the heights they're capable of. And when parents complain, when children are bored or not being encouraged, and parents complain, what's that get them? It gets them a label of elitism. Because many children, some students, that that minimum requirement, that low bar, um, easily cleared. And they get bored very quickly and never get challenged. And our educational system has got us to this point where we have an apathetic electorate and we are easily falling behind the rest of the world in science and math and reading. Very, very critical and core curriculum, from what I can see, doesn't solve this issue at all. Coming up next, Charles Hughes Smith, author and uh, blogger extraordinaire, will be joining me. You won't want to miss that. That's next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Charles Hughes Smith. He's one of my favorites. He's an entrepreneur and author. He wrote a book recently called Get a Job, Build a Real Career, and Defy a Bewildering Economy. He's also written The Nearly Free University and the Emerging Economy, The Revolution in Higher Education. And also, he's the author of the blog, of two minds.com it's regularly featured on zero hedge and david stockman's contra corner and i read it all the time charles welcome back to an economy of one thank you gary my pleasure to be here i appreciate you you joining us today you know uh uh, i haven't talked to you in a little while but one of your your blog uh entries the other day caught my eye and it's something we've been talking about recently coincidentally enough and that uh that uh, article talked about China and the decline in quality of the products in this country and soon to be affecting the profits. So let, let's, uh, 
let's kick this off because I have for a long time uh, said that the quality of products is, has diminished greatly over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. And that coincides with uh, outsourcing it all to, to China and, and other Pacific Rim countries. That's right. That's right, Gary. Um, the offshoring um, has uh, lowered the cost to the corporations um, who are making and distributing this stuff. But uh, we as consumers have have seen a relatively modest reduction in, in cost, if any. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've seen a huge reduction in quality. And, um, you know, Gary, what, what, what I remember is um, about competition and about uh, global free trade. And we, we have to put air quotes around free trade because um, <laughs> it's not always free, right? That's um, right. But, uh, you know, in the 1970s, when um, the Japanese auto manufacturers started uh, shipping their cars to the U.S. in, in, in quantity, what they one result was they had made more reliable cars you know and sure they had um they had some advantages from the way their government subsidized their exporters and there's a lot of complicated things but the bottom line sure. is they made the US auto manufacturers up their game and the quality of all vehicles went up because it was truly competition but when now we're not getting um competition with everything made in China, what we're getting is just a competition in price. The competition in terms of quality is simply not there. It's all it's all low quality. You know, and it's it, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the experiences that that I've had over the or several experiences that I've had over the several years is not only is the quality down on a lot of the products coming out of China, but I've noticed a lot of them are one offs. In other words, I, I have a a big refrigerator in my house and the ice maker quit working and the manufacturer told me throw the refrigerator away buy a new one and it's a hundred dollar ice maker but they couldn't get one because they no longer make that model and it seemed like a lot of that stuff coming out of china is designed to last a certain amount of time and then pitch the whole thing and buy another one you're right, Gary. Um, and, of course, uh, people have been talking about this uh, for decades. It's called planned obsolescence. And, of course, mm-hmm. U.S. manufacturers used it to some degree, but it's it's become extreme where things will only last a few months or a few years. And um, uh, in my own experience, I bought a GE um, uh, stove oven, and I bought a GE because I thought, hey, this is an American brand. And, of course, mm-hmm. it was made in Mexico. And it, it, it failed within a year. It, um, it, it started to light um, the, the oven on its own. <laughs> I mean, without turning on the oven, the oven would come on. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. So we call yeah. it a repairman. Of course, the, the, the service contract is, is almost useless. So right. I, I, my point being, this lack of or declining quality is, is spreading everywhere. In other words, it's not just isolated to China. It's like the stuff coming out of... Um, of other countries that is being imported by what used to be top American brands is now junk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really discouraging. I mean, my wife and I uh, have made a commitment many years ago that we were going to buy the best, and if we couldn't afford it, we'd wait. And, you know, I'm part of the baby boomer generation. I think you are also. And we grew up with anything coming out of Japan is essentially junk. We want to buy American-made stuff. 
and that's just getting tougher and tougher and tougher to do uh, every year to find things that aren't imported. And do you think that the trend, I mean, from from both your attitude, my attitude, do you think the trend is coming back to America, coming back to quality? Well, Gary, you know, that's um, it's a tough uh it's area because it's still such in the beginning stages, but I think there is a trend, and it's called um, relocalizing or um, reshoring. There's a several yeah. terms, and I think that one of the drivers is it makes no sense to ship materials to China and then have um, uh, people make low quality products there if you can have uh, automated you know, factories here, mostly mm-hmm. robotics and, and mm-hmm. advanced software, making a much better uh, product um, and not having to ship uh, across the Pacific twice. And um, that speeds up your time and you're, you're closer to your um, your customers. In other words, you, you, the way it is now, you order something from China and nine months later you get your product. Well, right. if, if tastes have changed, then, you know, you blew it. <laughs> Whereas yeah. if you make the stuff here the turnaround can be in a matter of days or weeks. And so um, there are competitive advantages to making stuff in America now. We're speaking with Charles Hugh Smith, author of the blog of two minds.com about China and the way we're keeping production rates high in, in their country. The, the article that, that I read, uh, I think it, it popped out at me because you talk about um, uh, a, a correspondent you have, and and he was talking about a Delta Unisaw table saw from back in the 60s. And that hit home because my dad died about 20 years ago. And up until about a couple months ago, I still had his Delta Unisaw from 1950. And I sold it. Somebody actually bought it because it still worked. It was still still true and, and, and level and everything. And... Uh, I upgraded to a, a newer one because they need a little more power and that kind of stuff. But they just don't make stuff like they used to back then, do they? No. And that's what um, the point that uh, the correspondent made that really struck me was he said, back in the 60s, they there was nothing on the market uh, in, in America that was of such a poor quality as what we take as as conventional or standard now. In other words, right. nothing was made as poorly as it is made today. And and uh, so that's a striking um, observation when you think about progress, right? Things are supposed to mm-hmm. become better, not just cheaper. But what we've got is things have become a little bit cheaper in some cases, a little more expensive in others. But in all cases, the quality has gone down, except for a few areas where there is still true competition like in in um in uh, autos and and uh, light trucks i mean the the, the right. definitely we have better cars and trucks than we did 20 years ago in terms of safety and right. and other features but that's a that's kind of an outlier that's that's not the um the standard for the rest of our uh uh material goods like appliances tools it's hard to find something that's that uh, won't break and not just from planned obsolescence just because it's made of of low quality materials right you know one thing that that you didn't touch on in your in your blog i mean we've been talking about essentially tools and and appliances and that kind of stuff but uh earlier on the show uh or on a previous show uh one of the things that struck me was 
uh, a lot of our pharmaceuticals and the components for pharmaceuticals are made in some of these countries and the quality control, the sanitation, uh, all that kind of stuff uh, is not up to American standards either. And, and we're ingesting that. I mean, if my refrigerator breaks down, it's not likely to cause me a health concern necessarily. But uh, if I'm ingesting uh, stuff that is substandard uh, because of labor costs, uh, I could have a real problem there. Yeah, Gary, that's an excellent point. And I think the larger context we're talking about is um, maybe two points. One is, why are Americans now so willing to accept um, such poor quality across the the board? Um, And number two, is free trade really um, everything it's it's, um, often made out to be? And and I'm all for... um, you know, true capitalism with uh, competition mm-hmm. and capital and um, labor flowing to what's valuable and, you know, uh, what we call, you know, classical capitalism and, and free trade in the sense of trade between nations is, is certainly part of that. But we have to wonder if if it's really to our advantage if there's no controls whatsoever. And that's what you're talking about with the pharmaceuticals. If, if there's really no controls on, on the quality of what's um, being shipped in here and sold, then um, that's that's not free trade, right? Yeah, I mean, and and until uh, we start demanding that quality and are willing to pay for it, I mean, I don't care if my pharmaceutical drugs cost me ten bucks more a month, fifty bucks more a month. I want to have the confidence that that what I'm swallowing is what I'm supposed to be swallowing, you know. So uh, uh, now in, in, we got about a minute left uh, of your time. Do you, what, what do you see uh, going forward? Do you see, I mean, there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about, uh, about Amway um, making it a competitive advantage worldwide to have a made-in-the-USA label. There's other countries out there that want made in the USA, and China is one of them. I mean, China, the Chinese population, isn't real excited about uh, ingesting their own stuff over there. Is that a, a trend globally, you see? I think so, and um, just anecdotally, I've heard from uh, some readers that they see more made in America um, stickers in, in Walmart as, mm-hmm. as one example. Um, another thing, Gary, is that the stronger dollar is, is attracting a lot of global manufacturers because um, this is um, where they're going to create their value is here in, in America because the dollar is stronger, and it means that they can buy materials cheaper uh, with that stronger dollar if they do their manufacturing here. So we may yet see a renaissance, and it's just in the very early stages, but um, we can support it by complaining to uh, yeah. you know U.S. corporations when they sell us stuff that breaks down and uh, right right to the CEO and say I'm not I can't buy GE anymore because the products are of such poor quality and yeah. and make our voice heard. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And once again, it boils down to the individual. We've been speaking with Charles Hughes Smith. He's an entrepreneur and author and he writes a blog called uptominds.com. It's on Zero Hedge and David Stockman's Contra Corner quite often. I read it all the time. Charles, once again, Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. I wish we had more time, and I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. I hope so, too, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, sometime in the last couple of weeks, I, I have a terrible memory on on what I've talked about. I, I spend so much time um, talking about different things on the radio. But sometime in the last few weeks, we've talked about how many rules and regulations come out of Washington. And even though Congress is in uh, vacation or whatever the heck you call it when they're not there, I call it an a uh, somewhat an expansion of liberty when they're when they're home campaigning, but even when they're out of session, rules and regulations are being created by different uh, departments, different bureaucrats, uh, unelected bureaucrats, I might say, uh, making rules and laws without going through Congress. Well, with three hundred to seven hundred laws being. Uh, put out there every day, all these new rules, I think, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, I think we start, uh, we need to start breaking a few rules. Spent a lot of time today talking about private property and the government trying to control that private property all the time. So, do we break laws? Do we blatantly put ourselves out there so that we get sacrificed and thrown into jail? No. But I do believe that we need to fight these rules. And I've said in the past, well, you know, one of my favorite books is, is no big secret. It's called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. If you haven't read it, uh, read it. It will change your life. Trust me on this. But uh, in the book, the producers in the world, those business owners, those bankers, those people that have a work ethic, that want to be self-supportive, that want to be self-reliant and independent, that value their liberty above all else, essentially go on strike and they withdraw from society. Now, it's a fiction book. I understand that. But... It is sometimes entertaining to sit back and think about withdrawing. There's nothing I'd like more than to leave society and go to Gulch Gulch sometime just to experience it. Now, I know it's not reality. I know there is no Gulch to go to. I know there is no John Galt to talk to. So in my own way, I encourage people to go on strike a little bit each day. A year ago, I, I encouraged people to go on strike and not switch over all their incandescent light bulbs to compact fluorescence. Not a big deal, but a little victory. Going on strike just a little bit. Going on strike can be anywhere from refusing to buy into the philosophy, the narrative that's put out there every day, that government is the problem solver. Going on strike can mean simply being not afraid. Government wants you to be afraid of anything and everything. Clean air, clean water, clean food everything. I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of nothing. 
I sleep very well at night. I'm not afraid of terrorists. Here's another fear. Think of this. There's a national movie theater chain, Regal Entertainment Group. They begun to check everybody's purse and backpack and bags and anything else before they allow you into one of the movies. Now, recently, we've had a couple instances around the country. Nutcases have gone in theaters. One guy shooting with a, a pellet gun or something. Another guy with a knife. Um, just recently, the guy out in Colorado, I believe, that uh, killed several people uh, in a movie theater a year ago, got sentenced to uh, life in prison. But what... What are the odds? Now we're giving up our liberty to see a movie? How do we go on strike about that? I'm not going to the movie. I'm going to find out what theaters are owned by these companies, and I ain't going. doesn't break my heart to spend not spend $20 on movie tickets and $40 on popcorn anyway, but... Why give up your liberty? Why give up your freedom? Why give up your private property? There is no more private property, no more private private property than your very own person. I will not go to one of these theaters. I'm sorry. I'm not afraid of somebody bringing a gun into the theater. That does not concern me. But people are willing to give up another piece of their liberty all in the name of safety. Well, if you give up liberty for safety, you will neither be safe or free. I don't mean to pick out or pick on Regal Entertainment. Other chains are doing it also. But if I walk into a movie theater and they want to look in my wife's purse, not going to happen. They want to frisk me, check me, run, run me through a metal detector, not going to happen. I am walking out of that place. I, I just, I will not give up my liberty. So we need some rule breakers. We need some people to go on strike just a little bit each day. And every day I think about what can I do today to be a little bit more on strike. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 